This podcast is sponsored by OAG. With the world's largest network of air travel data, OAG provides the most comprehensive, accurate flight schedule and flight status information from one trusted source. Explore our industry-leading data for airlines at OAG.com. Welcome to the first episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge in 2017 and the first in a few months. We apologize for the absence. We endured a bit of a dry spell in keeping the show sponsored. But we've now solved that and we're kicking the year off with a special look ahead episode. In short, what are we to expect from 2017 in the commercial airline industry? Yeah, excuse me, Jason, while I grab my crystal ball. I know what you're thinking, Seth, but this is not going to be one of those vague, loopy look ahead specials thanks to some ground rules I've come up with. We're not going to make any predictions about oil prices, currency movements, or economies around the world. Also, these are not going to be the biggest stories, but rather some of the more interesting ones. Those sound more like disclaimers than ground rules. You say tomato, I say tomato. I'm Jason Cottrell, Vice President of Airline Weekly. And I'm Seth Kaplan, Managing Partner of Airline Weekly. We're going to talk about aircraft markets, onboard products, leisure demand, premium demand, and more. It's all coming up as we are again open for business in the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for joining us. We're discussing what to expect in the airline industry in 2017, and I'd like to do this in two parts. First, let's talk about some overarching issues, and then we'll zip around the planet for some regional questions. Let's start with a big story in 2016. Low oil prices led to an increase in demand for leisure travel around the world. How is that demand holding up as we enter 2017? Reasonably well, at least relative to other uh, trouble spots in the industry. And obviously, it's a very broad question. and it's, it's different in different places. But yeah, generally speaking, I mean, look, oil was generally cheap. So that means two things. Number one, airlines can tolerate lower fares than they can tolerate in in an expensive fuel environment. And number two, in many parts of the world, at least, cheap oil puts... uh puts money back into the wallets of consumers. I mean, if you think especially of a place like the U.S., but not only there, uh, you know, cheap oil means cheap fuel for their cars, savings on that, gives them money to spend on, it, on other things like air travel. Uh, and indeed, they've been doing that in, in, in many parts of the world. So uh, so that combination of consumers with money to spend uh, and airlines who, who uh, are more tolerant of the kind of fares that those consumers are willing to pay than they might have been in, in the past led to, indeed, a, a pretty healthy leisure market around the world. And going into 2017, broadly at least, uh, that seems to be the case. Uh, Obviously, you have some regional trouble spots because of the geopolitical issues in the world because of terrorism and so forth. But when you're talking about leisure demand, generally, uh, leisure destinations are substitutable. You know, if if somebody uh, wants to go to a beach and they have the money to go to a beach and, uh, you know, they suddenly become become concerned about the security situation in one beach, well, they'll just go to a different beach. And so a decent demand environment and oil prices, although uh, well off their lows here, uh, still cheap enough in historical terms that airlines like that part of the business, uh, broadly speaking, at least. That leisure demand also resulted in the resurgence of the low-cost long-haul model. A lot of airlines are now doing it, including WestJet, Scoot, Jetstar, Eurowings, Rouge, Jinair, Wow Air, and of course Norwegian, who had a pretty good third quarter. 
As we said on the show before, we're rather skeptical of this model. Seth, did low-cost long-haul success in 2016 change your mind at all? And what do you expect in the space in 2017? Well, first, I think, Jason, you know, the premise of your question, uh, low-cost long-haul is a success. Um, you know, even that, uh, the, the, well, a success by what measure? I mean, there's certainly a lot of it, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, but is it highly profitable? That's a lot tougher to say um, because, first of all, all, of all those airlines you mentioned, I mean, in terms of actually being able to see financial results of any low-cost long-haul operation, Scoot, you mentioned, Singapore Airlines does indeed uh, reveal those those numbers. And eh, yeah, it's kind of a break a break-even airline now. Uh, you know, lost money for model now, kind of you know, kind of keeping its head above water, but certainly not wildly profitable. Yeah, you know what else? Uh, Eurowings, uh, you mentioned Lufthansa does break out those results. Eurowings not yet. You know, profitable uh, on on a year on basis had a you know, had a decent third quarter, but that's you know that's very much the peak quarter for any uh, European airline. Uh, not enough to to uh, to mitigate its losses in well, for example, the very bloody first quarter last year. Uh, now you know, of course, startup costs there and so forth. So it, you know, it, it could indeed turn the corner here going forward. And the rest of them, you're kind of relying on commentary uh, from airlines that don't break out. Uh, the results separately. Norwegian says long haul is actually now uh, a bright spot, and and you know that that may be true. Wow Air says it's doing well. A private company doesn't uh, doesn't disclose its its results. Uh, you know that you know no reason to think that's uh, that's not true. But in terms of you know WestJet Rouge and uh, you know and so forth, just optimistic commentary from these airlines and 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 look you know relative to the history of the business model uh sure i i believe that this is a decent time for uh, low cost long haul, uh, because of the stuff we talked about in, in my answer to the previous question, you know, cheap fuel prices and, and a robust leisure environment. Yeah, you know, but whether this is ever going to be the profit driver, you know, for for these airlines, or whether it will merely be less bad than it once was is a tougher question to answer. And 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 even at that, Jason, you kind of have to break it out into different segments. You know, when you're talking about flying from Eastern Canada to Europe or for you know, from from the northeastern US uh, to Europe you know the economics of that are not the same thing as ultra long haul where where it kind of becomes even tougher for you know, for reasons that we've discussed in, in in past shows sort of just just harder to differentiate yourself on cost and and bigger bigger revenue challenges so uh so yeah relative to its own history i'm i'm more optimistic than i once was but you know do i think that low cost long haul is ever going to be the uh the private driver that either short haul long haul or sort of premium or i should say short haul low cost or premium long haul uh have been for airlines uh i think it's way too early to to be to be all that optimistic about that but you're open-minded always <laughs> let's move on to premium demand while leisure had a banner year in 2016 the same could not be said for the front of the plane as we said in the year-end issue of airline weekly which, by the way, I highly recommend reading that issue if you haven't already. Uh, we said oil prices played a huge role in dampening premium demand. Seth, can you explain that a bit? Yeah, well, it's it's the other side of that same coin that we talked about before. Sure, cheap oil puts uh, money back into the pockets of consumers, but it is a big transfer of wealth uh, away from well, from oil producers for one thing, and a lot of the premium demand in the world. I mean, certainly not all of it, or even the majority of it, but but a meaningful amount of the premium demand in recent years has come from the oil sector. Uh, you know, 
ExxonMobil for a long time, the most valuable uh, traded company uh, in, in the world. Those Arabian Gulf carriers that have been, you know, expanding so aggressively in recent years. Uh, you know, a lot of that growth fueled by oil revenue. Uh, you know, not only. Because those carriers are owned by by uh, by governments with oil exposure, but you know, but but passengers buying tickets, uh, a lot of them connected to the industry. You know, a place like Houston, uh, you know, Calgary, where WestJet is headquartered. I mean, these are cities that uh, you know where oil is very important, and and places that are that are now suffering because of of uh, cheaper oil and and just cheap commodity prices in general in recent years in emerging markets. Jason, if you think of so much of what drove the growth of the airline industry over uh, the past decade, certainly up until a couple years ago, yeah, it was the commodities boom, you know, in, 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 in places like uh, Brazil, South Africa, so many others uh, where indeed cheap commodity prices now have hurt. So uh, there, you know, there are sectors that are doing fine. IT, you know, if you think of Silicon Valley and, and uh, you know, places with big IT exposure, you, you know, there, there are plenty of corporations that are doing fine. They're spending a lot of money on travel. Um, but that's one where, you know, whereas it's basically almost all good news for leisure travel, you know, notwithstanding some places where consumers are suffering, that oil is cheap, uh, certainly much more of a, a mixed picture for premium. Uh, and it's not just that, it's also just sort of the tepid global uh, economic growth, partly related to cheap oil, but, uh, you know, related to other things too, you know, sclerotic European economies, for example, you know, not, not going to be good news uh, for premium demand, the slowing economies and well, in places as important as China, you know, that that's not good either. And specific to China, also, you had the crackdown by the government on what it saw as wasteful uh, premium class spending. So, uh, uh, so yeah, the much more difficult environment and, and difficult to say, you know, quite when it'll recover, at least, you know, to the levels that it was at a few years ago. Um, although you could be a little bit more optimistic that at least it's off its lows in some places. Let's take a moment and thank this episode's sponsor, OAG. Learn more at OAG.com. Seth, what about aircraft markets? Last year saw a significant decline in orders for Boeing and Airbus. In Airline Weekly, we called it the worst year since 2010, which of course was on the heels of the financial crisis. What do you expect to see from Airbus and Boeing in 2017? Yeah, hard there either to be uh, too optimistic. Uh, you know, most recently we had Delta finally canceling its its order for Dreamliners. I believe there were eighteen on order. I mean, that was sort of widely expected that at least those would would uh, would never be delivered in in the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, an, an order inherited from Northwest Airlines, but just kind of symbolic. Uh, and that's the kind of thing, Jason, where you know, a few years ago, eighteen units. I mean. Who cares, right? When when airlines were ordering the kinds of uh, numbers of aircraft around the world that they were, but now, uh, yeah, every, every unit uh, certainly when it comes to wide body matters. And you have look an airline like Etihad just here in recent weeks, rather publicly, you know, showing itself to be more more vulnerable, uh, and others just. You know, if you look at actions rather than words, just not ordering the same kinds of uh, volumes of aircraft that they that they once did, um, and, and so uh, yeah, broadly speaking, uh, look, U.S. airlines are doing uh, are, are still doing very well, but just the way they do business isn't to order aircrafts by aircraft rather by the by the hundreds in the same way that other airlines when they were doing uh, doing well were doing. So uh, you know, part of why U.S. airlines 
are doing well is is uh, uh, sort of this very uh, surgical way of of ordering aircraft uh, in in general. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll see, but um, you know, no sign right now, at least, that uh, 2017 is is going to be a, a a banner year for uh, for aircraft orders. It, it's still. It, seems right now like the the peaks that we saw a few years ago well that they indeed were were peaks at least here for the uh uh the short to medium term regarding the c series i think we would both agree that 2016 saw its share of good news for that aircraft especially with the delta order and the fact that the cs300 entered service do you expect the good news to continue in 2017 yeah, I, I definitely look it, it it that was uh, 2016 was a year that uh you know it could have been nails in the coffin for the C series and it, and it wasn't that at all. Uh I mean, look, you know, Delta surely got an incredible deal. It it, it said as much. But, you know, there are aircraft that you couldn't take an airline, a smart airline to to you know to accept delivery of even if it was free, right? I mean, a Sukhoi Superjet, uh, the SSJ100 from Russia, among Western airlines, really only Interjet took it, and then that aircraft was um, recently well grounded uh, for for uh, safety concerns and so forth. So you know, it's an example of an aircraft that uh, you know I don't think Delta would have taken it if it was free. Um, so so the fact that it that it wants the C series, the fact that uh, that other airlines have purchased uh, it or have shown interest is, is is good news. I mean, look from Bombardier's perspective, it's it uh, you know, I mean it has a long way to go before that that program uh, proves itself financially. You know, you'd have to get a bunch of these up and flying and, and performing well economically. Economically, uh, around the world, and, and then eventually, airlines paying prices where where Bombardier could could uh, could profit. But um, but no, yeah, uh, and the whole sort of range of possibilities of what could have happened in 2016 for the C series, y- you have to say it was a uh, a rather good year. And let's let's look here going forward. Um, you know, there are other airlines with needs for smaller aircraft. You know, JetBlue has its 190s beginning to age. Would it consider the C series? Even Spirit has sort of indicated interest in. I mean, it it has been. You know, at least relatively downgaging. Uh, you know, uh, w- would it be interested? Um, you know, I don't know that that aircraft is right for Spirit, but you know, it seems more open-minded to to, to you know to those kinds of things than it once did, and and uh, and others around the world. So uh, so yeah, this aircraft will long remain a disappointment relative to what Bombardier hoped, but at least at least off its lows in terms of uh, in terms of its performance, in terms of its financial performance and uh, expectations going forward. Let's talk about onboard product. What impressed you in 2016, and what are you most curious about in 2017? Just sort of staying in North America for a minute, because that's one area where all the North American carriers, as I said, you know, are financial standouts around the world. Uh, in terms of product, in terms of product, they tend to be laggards. Uh, you know, partly because they just performed so poorly for so many years that they didn't have the money to invest in it. Uh, and so, you know, one major trend around the world over the past decade has been premium economy. I'm talking true long haul premium economy, you know, with a seat that's that's wider than economy and differentiated meal service and, you know, lots of extra legroom and that sort of thing. Now, it started to show up in North America at Air Canada a few years back, but the U.S. carriers were, you know, conspicuously absent from a list of, of global airlines that offered it. Uh, that has now changed. We have, um, you know, Delta an American both having uh, announced an American now actually having taken delivery with aircraft that feature it and United showing every sign that it will announce a, a 
premium economy product, although it it hasn't yet done so. So uh, you know that that's 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 exciting news for for travelers who uh, you know can afford something more than economy, but but are perhaps paying out of their own pockets and, and can't afford business class uh, tickets. So um, uh, yeah, so uh, I'd say I'd say premium economy. The fact that it's uh, now soon to be ha- perhaps become uh, ubiquitous on long haul flights from uh, the U.S. where it was uh, where it was once not to be found other than on global carriers, obviously, uh, flying to there. Most curious about in 2017, well, I'll stay in that part of the world, uh, Polaris, uh, you know, United's new business class product, which has, first of all, replaced its first class product that's gone away, an upgrade from its business class product. We've talked about this in the past, Jason, you know, United sort of made the bet that it could, that it could configure its planes in a way where, you know, it, it's got live flat seats, it's got all aisle access. Those are the two things that business travelers, uh, you know, demand more than anything else, but that it could, it could configure it a bit more densely, uh, by all appearances than other airlines are doing, uh, with, you know, perhaps like a, a slightly smaller vi- video monitor, that sort of thing. But if it's right that, you know, that, that, what passengers want more than anything else is 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 to be able to sleep uh, and to be able to have that direct aisle access when they want to get up uh, in the middle of the night without climbing over somebody or having somebody climb over them. And it can squeeze in a few more seats in a way that passengers don't care about. If it's right that they don't care about it and they're willing to pay the same fares uh, that they're willing to pay, you know, other airlines that have a less densely configured aisle access live flat product. Uh, then that's a pretty uh, that's a pretty interesting thing uh, uh, financially, and so I'm curious to see if indeed that pans out uh, the way United expects. All right, as promised, let's look at 2017 from a regional perspective, and I'd like to do this in dun dun a lightning round format. Uh, Seth, <laughs> I'll give you the region and a key question from that region. You give me your comment or tell me why it's an interesting question or just say something intelligent, preferably in a lightning fast manner. And in full disclosure, Seth has seen these questions because I'm lifting them directly from the year-end issue of Airline Weekly. Let's start in Australia. Where will Qantas fly its new 787-900s? Uh, well, actually, my crystal ball works really, really well for this one because it, it just announced its first route. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to fly from Melbourne to, to uh, Los Angeles. But I think uh, you know, in terms of other routes, where obviously, as it, as it takes more deliveries, it'll be announcing more routes. Th- those, those are the kinds of things you can expect, sort of these, these, uh, these well, ultra long haul, uh, but thinner markets than uh, where you might see well, when an A380, for example. Um, and so, yeah, so I think you know, Melbourne, Los Angeles, sure, that's that's exactly the kind of thing. And the, these are really exciting aircraft because they're, you know, they have uh, incredibly low unit costs, but a lot of range. And so, um, so yeah, so you could put them into those markets where you wouldn't be able to necessarily fill an A380 or another larger aircraft, but where um, uh, where it's, it's just perfect. And, and uh, you know, to be able to fill a a a nine hundred, um, nine hundreds, Jason have more seats than the eight hundreds, uh, but also lower unit costs. So, uh, you know, it, it, especially in this environment right now, where you know the, the the global fare environment we talked about earlier for premium travel, especially, not the greatest. That's exactly the kind of aircraft you want, one with uh, low unit costs uh and and uh and and really good range which you know when you're when you're when you're Qantas and looking at a lot of the, those long haul markets that you have uh very very helpful so uh you know I don't know what's next but um probably more 
you know, of the secondary type markets, you know, that might not be the aircraft for Sydney, Tokyo, but it might be the aircraft for, you know, Sydney, Nagoya or what have you. In Asia, will Singapore Airlines get out of its earnings rut? Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's tougher to call a bottom right now, uh, for that. Uh, you know, this is an airline that for, uh, a long time was, was a, a a standout performer, uh, you know, maybe not in terms of. I mean, it never, it never put up the stratospheric profit profit margins of, I don't know, I don't know Ryanair or somebody like that. But it was consistently rather profitable. Um, and uh, yeah, now kind of a kind of a break even airline, you know, struggling to uh, recover its 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 cost of capital. Um, and yeah, I, I I don't know that that you can call a bottom yet there with all the new low cost flying, for example, in, in Southeast Asia. Um, it, it's it's just a, a a tough competitive environment there with a lot of just a lot of capacity uh, in general in in the uh, in the region. Um, so look, it'll Singapore Airlines will always. You know, take a revenue premium for its very nice product and service and all that. But I don't know that we've seen anything yet suggesting that uh, the the tough days are are behind it. Staying in Asia, will Vietjet challenge Air Asia for LCC dominance? Well, Air Asia is by far the largest low cost carrier in 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 the region, especially counting sort of all the all the subsidiary and and related airlines. No, Vietjet uh, picked picked a picked a. Great market, um, you know. Vietnam is is uh, just just a really big inbound uh, tourism market. A lot of potential there, a lot of realized potential already. I mean, it's 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 uh, very much already on the map. Hard hard to call it sort of this uh, you know undiscovered place anymore. Um, very very popular, but then and, and with other now you know uh, sort of emerging tourist markets in the region, Myanmar and what have you, uh, you know, Vietjet, very, very well positioned. And uh, yeah, I mean, they picked the right model, the right business model. That's that's what you do is, is uh, you know, very low cost in a in a place with a lot of leisure demand. Um, and so you could, uh, you, you could envision them certainly continuing to emerge and to challenge AirAsia, uh, even though AirAsia will, will long be the, the, the largest low-cost carrier in that region. Will the new AirAsia Japan succeed? Well, you know, it, 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 uh, I mean, it'll be more successful if at least the, the owners of this joint venture see eye to eye uh, more than more than the first time around. I mean you you want you want the people running an airline all to be on the same page and, and so far, you know, they, they, they seem to be, so that's helpful. Uh, but that's a place where, you know, whereas uh, you know, the first time that Air Asia was thinking about getting involved in Japan years back, it looked at a market where, you know, there was just sort of ripe for new low cost service. Uh, and that's no longer the case. I mean, there's there's now a lot of low cost service uh, there and and uh, in in the near abroad, you know, Korea and and, and China and so forth. So, uh, no longer sort of this uh, this landscape of you know that was just crying out for low cost service in the same way uh, that it was the first time. But at least if they can, you know, get get sort of the 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 ownership part right and everything they'll have a better shot this time uh, than they did the uh, the first time around moving on to russia will regulators there force aeroflot to divest itself of Russia? well there you're asking me a political question <laughs> not an airline question uh and uh you know so so yeah it's it's we should have added that to the list of uh, disclaimers that we right. <laughs> yeah right so you tell me what uh yeah exactly you tell me some other things that have nothing to do with airlines and i'll I'll tell you the answer to that but yeah no, that they've they've 
sort of been trying to walk this line um, of uh, of letting Aeroflot, you know, consolidate, um, but but not monopolize the market. And um, and the answer to whether they think it's gone too far in consolidating, I guess, will will uh, we'll answer that question. In sub-Saharan Africa, will South African Airways and Kenya Airways turn themselves around? Well, yeah, that's that's sort of I think two separate questions there. Taking the second one first, um, you know, Kenya Airways is one that at least has the geography to to do well. Uh, you know, Kenya is an important leisure destination when things are reasonably stable there, as as uh, you know they have been lately. And uh, you know, it's a place where you know you don't need the longest haul flights to reach the the tourism source markets in 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 Europe for example uh where you can you can run a connecting hub in a meaningful way from points farther south in Africa you know to to uh to Europe and beyond and uh so so look you know it, yeah it's 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 been tough for Kenya Airways but you could you could imagine themselves um turning themselves around so, you know, south african airways just um is plagued with uh, you know first and foremost awful geography um it's uh, uh you know all the things i said before you kind of are kind of they are kind of I said this earlier in the show already, but I'll say the other side of the coin for Kenya Airways, right? It's uh, you know, it's a really long way to reach your your tourism source markets. Um, now, South Africa itself, it, you know, is, is a it's a sizable economy, uh, and and there's a lot of regional travel there. Um, but you know, you can't run a global connecting hub in that way, plagued in the same way that you know, you know, Qantas or, or Air New Zealand are. Or Lawn is, you know, for, you know, Latam now, I should say, uh, for, for you know, deep South America. There are a lot of places where that's true, but uh, you know, South African Airways has its cost issues. Um, it th- there's 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 just a lot plaguing it. Both sort of things you can't do anything about, and things that are rather tough to do anything about. You know, and just lower cost, more nimble uh, competitors uh, like uh, you know, Kalula, for example. Uh, the, the, Comair and Kalula, one company that run a uh, you know one sided company, the the British Airways branded franchise, Comair, and then uh, the low cost carrier Kalula, uh, and uh, just without you know all the legacy burdens that that SAA has, you know you you uh, you know you cer- certainly hope that they can do it, but uh, but it, it it it's tough. I'm making up my own region here, and I'm calling it the Middle East slash Turkey. <laughs> Will the Gulf carriers and Turkish airlines continue to decelerate growth? Yeah, always uh, a tough challenge. Anyway, we go through this when we sort of, you know, where, where, where do you where do you categorize things? We have we have you know ten regions uh, in, in airline weekly is the way we divide up the world. But you could always, you know, sort of, you know, there there you have these kind of cleft regions where it doesn't belong here, it doesn't belong there. But um Turkish Airlines, I mean look, there's there's a lot that's different about it from the Gulf carriers, but certainly similar to them in the sense that it competes for many of the same global traffic flows. Uh and the fact that, yeah, as as you suggest in your question, it's just been growing so incredibly ra- rapidly uh in recent years. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean I think yet you have to say the answer to that question is is likely yes, they have been, um, as as you suggested, decelerating their growth. Uh in, in the case of Turkish actually just just not growing at this point. Yeah, no reason to think that that won't continue. Um, you know, Etihad, as I mentioned earlier, you know, sort of has has been more public lately about um, admitting its 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 issues. And uh, you know, Emirates has said publicly it's it's a it's a tougher environment. 
Um, you know, Qatar obviously facing all the same issues as everybody else. And uh, Turkish, you know, uh, on one hand has a, sort of a much larger local market, a huge domestic market, some of the things that the Arabian carriers don't have. But on the other hand, all the instability in Turkey, um, you know, they've been trying their best to uh, put more of an emphasis on, you know, connecting traffic on sixth room traffic where you have some people who are, uh, you know, perhaps willing to connect uh, over Istanbul, even if they're not interested in in staying in Turkey and you know that sort of thing, but uh, but you know at 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 some point um, it, there just become too many leaks to plug them all, and and uh, it's it's a tough environment for all of those airlines, and uh, yeah, I think you're going to see this the growth continue indeed to decelerate. In India, will Jet Airways assert itself intercontinentally? Well, it's showing uh, signs of doing so. And actually, the answer to that question kind of related to the previous question about the Gulf carriers, because Jet, of course, one of the number of airlines around the world that are partly owned by Etihad. Uh, And in the case of Jet, there's been what appears to be sort of a shift in the balance of power away from Etihad um, back to, uh, uh, well, back, back closer to home in, in India. And if indeed Jet is able to run itself more for its own benefit than for, you know, feeding Abu Dhabi's, you know, hub and so forth, uh, that, that that would be helpful uh, because I think that's something that's that has uh, that has plagued it in recent years, sort of this, uh, you know, are passengers going to connect in Mumbai, especially, or you know, perhaps Delhi, or are they going to connect uh, in, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, and, and that, you know, if you believe the media accounts has been a source of this tension between Etihad and, you know, and the Indian partners. Um, well, if, if, uh, if more of the decisions are being made for the benefit of, of Jet Airways itself, then that indeed does give it more hope that it can um, assert itself intercontinentally. India, uh, you know, a lot of challenges there, but uh, that is one emerging market that's uh, certainly held up rather well, uh, you know, because it's not a commodities exporter like you know, Brazil and South Africa, and Russia. And so, yeah, you know, you, you'd have to say on a relative basis, at least, that that's an airline that, that you might be. Uh, uh, you know, optimistic about staying in India. Will Vistara go long haul? I mean, it would need a few more airplanes. First of all, India has relaxed the rules about how much experience and how many aircraft that an airline needs to go long haul. Well, I should say more on the experience side. You you used to need five years in business. Now, now you no longer need that. You still need twenty aircraft, which Vistara doesn't yet have. Uh, just checked. CH Aviation, the fleet database, uh, says it has 13 now. Uh, so it would need 20. That still exists by Indian law. And then it would also just want to uh, want to have to go uh, uh, abroad. But uh, long haul, gosh, um, it's, you know... We talked about it before. It's 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 tough right now. Vistara is not a uh, you know a low cost carrier. It's, it's chasing more of the premium traffic. I'm not sure there's anything in the world right now that suggests that you know what you want now is to launch a new long haul operation in terms of where the opportunities are in the world right now. But that doesn't mean that it's uh, that it's not going to do it. Um, Vistara, of course, partly owned by uh, Singapore Airlines as well as by its. Uh, it's it's Indian partners in Latin America. Will Avianca sell part of itself and to whom? Seems likely to Avianca. You know, an airline that that uh, you know one of the real stars of the past decade. Uh, you know, d- d- um, turned itself around, merged with Taka, uh, has done a lot of the right things. But um, you know, all of a sudden the economic growth really slowed down. The demand really slowed down. Now 
seems to find itself in in need of uh, capital. The uh, the three main contenders seem to be United, Delta, and Copa. Yeah, the answer to who uh, you know among them gets to do it, you know, if in fact one of them does. Could have broader implications for the airline industry. Now, particularly if Delta is the one who ends up doing that. There, you could have all kinds of alliance implications. You know, Delta, of course, uh, uh, an important Sky Team member, Avianca Star Alliance. You know, Delta very much uses these kinds of investments for strategic purposes. It would not be just a financial investment. You know, if it's United or Copa, well, those are two airlines that are already Star Alliance members. And so they would, uh, uh, you know, presumably just become closer uh, to Avianca, you know, uh, Copa, you'd probably have some some antitrust questions just because the two airlines are important competitors uh, within within Latin America for uh, for you know for for some of the same uh, same business for some of the same business in Mexico. We have a similar question: Will Interjet sell a stake of itself, and if so, to whom? Well, not to Delta. <laughs> Delta, of course. Having invested in uh, Aeromexico, now in the process of of uh, you know, going forward with their joint venture, a very promising joint venture for uh, for for Delta and Aeromexico. Interjet is the least successful of the three large low cost carriers in Mexico. You have Interjet, you have Volaris, and you have uh, Viva Aerobus. Uh, Volaris and Viva Aerobus are both uh, ultra low cost carriers. Each of them backed by one of the two big ultra low cost carrier ownership groups in the world. Uh, in Volaris's case, by Indigo Partners, the same one that had backed you know Spirits, very successful transformation. Now behind Frontier, uh, you know the, the, the still involved in Wizz Air, very successful others around the world. Viva Aerobus by uh, by Irlandia Aviation. That's uh, you know that's Ryan family money. Yes, that Ryan family. You know, had backed up Allegiant and other very successful airlines around the world. Uh, Interjet, not a member of either of those two families, uh, sort of more of an upmarket carrier trying to do it on, you know, getting revenue premiums for more legroom and all the same kinds of things that other upmarket low cost carriers uh, try to do and facing some of the same challenges that many of them uh, face. Basically, they're just not getting compensated for how much expensive, uh, how much more expensive their product uh, is to deliver. So uh yeah it, I mean it, it look um Mexico's a huge market um uh, a neighboring market to the US you you know you, you can imagine both uh, the, the American and United um interested in doing something with Interjet since they're locked out of working with uh with uh Aeromexico so you know th- those would be the two uh the two obvious candidates there okay we have two regions left in Europe will anyone match Lufthansa's GDS surcharge strategy yeah, one of uh, a million questions you could ask about uh, Europe on a podcast that's uh, that's not a million minutes long. That's a good, yeah. You know, Jason Some might argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you know, yeah, yeah. We're running, we are running kind of long. Yeah, it just yeah. seems like it's a million minutes long. <laughs> I, 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 I get the hint. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, you're the one who wrote all these questions, right? It's your right. fault. Um, it, uh, we'll yeah, we'll bill it as a special double issue to start. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, OAG. Uh, uh, gosh, I mean, it's been a, almost a year and a half now, Jason. If I'm not mistaken, I think they started in September of 2015. Nobody has matched yet. Uh, you know, Lufthansa's competitors have all enjoyed sort of this last mover advantage where Lufthansa goes first. It it it, it deals with you know some number of customers defecting with you know, sort of just having to face the ire of the GDS companies and all that and. Yeah, so it has sort of taken all the downside of it. Now it now it says that on the other hand, I mean look, it it, it gets 
uh, I mean, it's not just saying this, you know, certainly it's, it's getting some amount of revenue uh, from the surcharge. Uh, it's getting some benefit from forcing other customers to, you know, to instead book directly. You know, when your customers book directly, not only do you save on costs, but you get to interact more directly with them, upsell them on products that, you know, they might have bought from, you know, from others instead. You know, if it's a consumer, you know, travel insurance, for example, they're buying it from you instead of from the, uh, oh, the OTA or what have you. I mean, just one of many examples. So other uh, benefits, but, uh, yeah, I think it's telling it nobody else has matched yet. And uh, I, I guess I guess a, a sort of a corollary to your question is well if nobody matches and you could tell I'm kind of hedging on this question but I guess I guess I'm I guess I'm saying I don't see it imminent that I don't see anybody else matching imminently uh, so the other question is if they don't match can Lufthansa just go on forever you know charging while everybody else isn't or at some point does it back off right now it's just sort of a standoff right nobody else has shown any. Um, any sign of matching imminently, although they've all sort of said they're they're intrigued by it, and I mean they would say that there's no harm in in uh, if you're an airline, if you're you know, Air France KLM, or if you're IAG, and letting the GDSs think that if they don't make you happy, you might start doing this right uh, from a negotiating standpoint. Sure, let them think that, then you might in fact be uh, be be about to do something. But uh, anyway, nothing seems imminent, and on the other hand, Lufthansa sure doesn't seem like it's uh, it's about to back off. Uh, so can that situation last forever? I don't think it can. I think it's going to go one way or the other at some point. Um, but the, I don't know which way it'll go. Staying in Europe, will Ryanair or EasyJet interline? Yeah, I think they will. I think they'll do it their own way. Uh, you said or. I think I think and. I think they both uh, are likely to do it. You know, it's just gotten to this point where there seems to be so much natural traffic to be exchanged between them and 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 long haul carriers that don't have partners you know well for easyjet a place like gatwick for example and uh but you know it'll it'll have to be you know them doing it their way without uh, too much of a cost impact uh you know perhaps with customers um you know the compensating them for for the uh the cost of doing it but um yeah i i I wouldn't be surprised to see either or both of them uh doing it in 2017 so by the end of the year in north america will air canada continue its aggressive international expansion i think it'll continue expanding but i think uh, the growth might plateau i mean first of all uh it's up against the limits with rouge now It, it would have to go back to its pilot uh, if I'm not mistaken, and, and uh, get them to agree to any further expansion, and that would, one way or another, that would be costly. I mean, we would ha- we would have to, you know, we'd have to give some them something to get that. You know, absent that, I mean, that's that's the lowest cost vehicle to grow. Um, and so so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think you'd have to say at some point it 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 naturally would uh, would slow down. So maybe 2016 will have been the 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 high water mark, but um, but but having said that, I mean it's you know Air Canada is clearly very happy with with uh with how things have gone intercontinentally. It's 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 doing well. It's 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 profit margins have have converged with with WestJet, and so uh, I'm sure it's going to be you know looking for every opportunity to continue expanding it uh internationally. But you know whether the same pace can can continue, uh, I I I I just don't know that it, that it can. And lastly, will 2016 mark the peak of this historic Historic earning cycle that the U.S. airlines have enjoyed. I think it will. Uh, yeah, I think they'll, they'll continue doing quite well. You know, for a while they kind of got to operate in an alternative universe where they were still getting you know rather high fares, but their costs were very low because uh, well because fuel was cheap because they were still operating with labor agreements signed back when things were not as good as they are now. You know, now you have fuel cost off their lows. You have new labor agreements that are that are 
much more expensive and fares that are uh, that that are, that at this point are still rather low because you know just all the new capacity, all the growth over the past few years has caught up with itself. So it's uh yeah, so you put all that together, basically higher costs and and uh and, and lower revenues, and it's it's uh kind of a recipe for for profits to be off their highs, which I. I mean, I've said in the past, I just sort of thought that was inevitable. Um, I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's uh, I know, frustrating for airline investors, uh, you know, obviously happy for consumers that, that fares are down. I, I um, you know, in the end, when in an environment like this, there were just too many incentives for airlines to kind of continue growing, you know, you put it all together and, and uh, it, and yeah, you're you're going to see margins uh, in 2017 somewhat lower now. Now, of course, the big question is what's going to happen with fuel prices. And as you said at the top of the show, we're not going to try to predict that. Uh, but we do know that at the moment, as 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 we begin 2017, they are uh, higher. And, and certainly, uh, you know, the, the the biggest ever present short term risk for airlines is a spike in fuel costs because when fuel costs rise, you get exactly the opposite of the condition that I just described a minute ago. You know. The, the, you know, a couple of years ago, fuel prices started falling, um, but for a while, airfares didn't really fall because airlines in the U.S. at least weren't growing all that rapidly. So you had this sort of constrained supply, which kept fares up. Uh, you know, fares aren't directly tied to fuel prices; uh, they're only tied to fuel prices in the sense that fuel prices cause airlines to do other things with capacity, which in turn down the road push fares either up or down. Uh, well. If fuel prices were to very suddenly rise, then you'd get a very different kind of alternate universe where you know consumers, for the moment at least, would continue dr- enjoying very low fares, and airlines would be stuck paying those higher fuel prices. Now, uh, look, they're much better positioned to deal with that than they were in the past. Uh, you know, a decade ago, spiking fuel costs drove several U.S. airlines quite literally into bankruptcy. I don't think that would happen now. They've They've done all the right things to position themselves to deal with it better, uh, but in the short term, you know, before they get their hands around the capacity and do all the things that I think they would do, uh, it would be uh, somewhat painful. But absent a fuel price spike, if you just sort of have uh, these somewhat higher fuel prices that we have here, uh, you know, and perhaps even even growing somewhat from where they are, uh, and all the other things I described, I think you would just get margins somewhat lower than where they've been uh, in 2015 and 2016. All right, that wraps up episode 59. Again, I urge you to check out our year-end issue. That's the December 12th edition. There you'll find a full review of the defining industry developments of 2016. We'll see you here next week for another episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge. Thanks for stopping by. This podcast has been sponsored by OAG. Learn more at OAG.com. So, does it feel good to be back? Yeah, it's a... uh a rather comfortable saddle. <laughs> I like what they've done with the place. 